Good evening. Let me offer a word of prayer as we turn again to God's word. Our loving Father, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and so therefore has a final authority for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that your word might do its work among us this evening, that it might be a light to our path, a rock upon which we can place our feet, and a sword to cut deeply into our soul and to divide and separate the good from the bad, the true from the false. Amen. I'd be most grateful if you could turn back to the uh, passage that was read earlier in our service. It's Second Timothy and chapter 3, and you'll find it on page 1196 and 7, 1196 and 1197 in the Church Bibles, Second Timothy and chapter 3. If you didn't know when you entered church, Tonight, then you certainly know by now that here at Trinity we're in a state, uh, a stage of transition as we seek and pray for a new senior minister. And there's no better place to turn to in Scripture to describe um, what kind of minister we ought to be looking and praying for as we overhear this. Uh, Part of the conversation, as we listen in, as Paul, the senior minister, in prison in Rome, as we believe, and coming towards the end of his life, he is due to be executed quite soon, as Paul writes this pastoral letter to a younger minister, Timothy, in uh, overseeing the church in Ephesus. But as we overhear this message, and as preachers often point, uh, point out, when we read a letter of Paul, it's like listening in, it's like eavesdropping on one side of a telephone conversation. You can, hear, you can learn a great deal, can't you, from other people's telephone conversations. And I want us to just slightly tweak uh, our approach to this passage. So not so much to ask, what does this passage tell us about the kind of minister that we think we want, or if we want to be more pious about it, the kind of minister that we think that God wants us to want, I want to tweak it slightly and ask the question, focus on the question, what kind of church do we want to be that such a minister would rejoice in serving and ministering among us? What kind of church do we want to be? Now, the answer as far as this second letter to Timothy is concerned, is the same. Whether we say what kind of minister are we looking for, the answer is, as far as 2 Timothy is concerned, it would be a gospel minister above all else. But the answer is the same when we ask the question, what kind of church do we think God wants us to be? And the same answer is again, a gospel church. This letter is full of encouragement to Timothy to be a gospel minister and to be the minister of a gospel church. In chapter 1, one of the key messages was guard that gospel 
chapter 1 and verse 14, guard the good deposit that's been laid down. In chapter 2, one of the key messages is be prepared to suffer for the gospel because faithful Christians and faithful ministers of the, of the gospel will suffer for it to a lesser or greater extent sooner or later. And now in chapter 3, a key message is continue in the gospel. Perhaps most obviously in verse 14. Will you look at it with me, please? But as for you, Paul says to Timothy, continue in what you have learnt and have become convinced of. Continue in it. So the key message this evening is for us, along with our ministers, to continue in the gospel. Why is it so important to be instructed and encouraged to continue in the gospel because, Paul says, there will be obstacles, serious obstacles in the way. Go right back to verse 1. Mark this. There will be terrible times, says Paul, in the last days. Now I need to pause on this because as soon as we see that phrase or read that phrase, the last days, we might jump straight to the days or weeks or years immediately preceding the return, the wonderful, glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age. But that isn't usually what the New Testament means by the last days. And I don't think it's at all what Paul means here by the last days. The usual meaning of the expression the last days in the New Testament is to refer to the entire period between Christ's first and second comings. That entire period is the last days. Uh, Just one example plucked out of the air, as it were, the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews says that in the past, God has spoken through the prophets and so on, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through a son. And in any case, to come back to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, if Paul was thinking of the last days as some far-off future period, why would he tell Timothy in verse 5 to have nothing to do with the kind of troublemakers who are causing these terrible times? So we can clarify in that way what Paul says just by adding two letters to what he says. When Paul says, the last days, we can be quite clear that he means these last days, the entire gospel age, the entire church age. So therefore, when Paul talks about terrible times in the last days, he is saying there will be periods, there will be seasons of terrible persecution and terrible trouble in the church. Let us not imagine for a moment that the power of the gospel is such that it sweeps all before it and there is no opposition to it. Satan is a defeated foe. He is fatally wounded and just like a fatally wounded wild animal, that's when he is most dangerous. And our Lord himself taught that there would be both good and evil gospel success and gospel opposition 
throughout these last days. Think of the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Let them grow together, he said, until the final day of harvest. So we need to continue in the gospel because of terrible times that will be inflicted upon the gospel and the cause of the gospel from time to time in these last days. But now how do we continue in the gospel? Well, this chapter divides roughly into two halves. In verses 1 to 10, Paul sets out certain attitudes and behaviours that will resist the gospel and arrest our progress in the the work of the gospel. But then having set out all of these problems, all of these characteristics of terrible times, then comes a turning point in verse 10, when Paul says to Timothy, you, however, and then he sets out more positively those things which will enable and equip Timothy to continue safely and effectively in the ministry of the gospel. This is, in other words, a chapter of contrasts, what to avoid and what to embrace. And I'd like to pick out for a slightly uh, more detailed attention a quartet of these contrasts. Here comes the first one. This chapter talks about love and poses the question to us all, will we love self or will we love God. Do you see in verse 2, um, Paul talks, uh, first of all, uh, in, in setting out a whole list, 18 or 19 items of problems and characteristics of these terrible times, Paul begins by saying people will be lovers of themselves. And then at the end of that list, in verse 4, It is lovers of self and lovers of money and other things rather than lovers of God. So here are the contra, here are the bookends of this long list of uh, problems besetting the work of the gospel. Bookended, I say, by lovers of self or lovers of God. Now I need to pause again on this idea of loving oneself. Because you must have noticed that our culture is saturated with advice to people to love themselves. Just a few quotations drawn um, almost out of a hat. Someone says, a famous person, I have an everyday religion that works for me. Love yourself first and everything else falls into line. Or here's another. Love yourself and follow your dreams, because if you want it badly enough, it will happen. Or a third one, even more briefly. Love yourself, you deserve it. You can multiply um, across the internet, across social media, people texting and uh, Facebooking one another with my little pony sort of advice, (laughs) like that. And I'm not even going to stand here and say it's all nonsense, because I certainly do not want to stand here and preach to you that Scripture teaches uh, teaches you to hate yourself. That isn't what Scripture teaches at all. 
Scripture does not encourage low self-esteem. Paul himself says in writing to these same Christians, the Ephesian Christians, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29, no one ever ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it. Paul understands that to care for yourself is a natural thing to do. But self-love is a beast that needs to be kept contained and under control. Or if I put it like this, what kind of self-image did Paul have? Did he hate himself? Did he have low self-esteem? I don't think so. It is true that Paul calls himself in one place the worst of sinners and in another place the very least of all God's saints. Yes, he said those things about himself. But see here in verses 10 and following how confidently He holds himself up as an example for Timothy to observe and imitate. You know, he says, what kind of life I have led. A person who hated himself or had low self-esteem would not be saying that kind of thing. No, scripture does not teach us to hate ourselves, but it does teach us not to love ourselves rather than loving, loving God. Because there is a love of God which is simply, uh, excuse me, a love of self that is simply idolatrous. This is a love which is selfish, self-centered, and narcissistic. According to verses 2 to 4, it's a self-love that goes hand in hand with moral failure, family breakdown, and all kinds of antisocial behavior. People who love themselves rather than God tend to be materialistic, covetous, and hedonistic, lovers of pleasure, as Paul says. Now, does that description of self-love that Paul penned 2,000 years ago sound familiar? (laughs) I think it's achingly descriptive pointedly descriptive of so such great swathes of our own culture is bang up to date. Self-love is ruinous. As somebody, I'm not even sure it's a Christian, somebody once said, to be truly happy, you have to be committed to a person or a cause other than yourself. Let us this evening allow Christ to ask us, each one of us, a question. The same question he once asked Peter, who had failed his Lord so badly. Jesus asked Peter that one question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Is our love primarily for self, or is it for God? Now, the second pair of contrasts I want to draw your attention to this evening, uh, having dealt a little bit with the idea of love, is about relationships. Will our our relationships in this church exploiting or nurturing? 
Paul talks about some exploiting or exploitative relationships in verse 6. He talks about certain false teachers who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. Hmm. Why pick on women, Paul? And does this have anything to do uh, with the recent decision of uh, our church council to uh, permit and encourage applications for senior minister from women as well as men? Well, I don't think it has anything (laughs) to do with that, actually. Um, I don't think that Paul is making any comment at all about womanhood, any more than when he talks about the false teachers who are male, he's making any generalised comment about manhood. I think it's more to do with the situation in Ephesus in his own day. In that culture and that society, women were particularly vulnerable to false teaching because on the one hand, they lacked education, And on the other hand, they had low social status. So they were vulnerable to people who would knock on the door while the husbands are out and sort of say, I've got a plan for you. I've got a group you can can join. I've got a book you can read. Again, this kind of um, charming your way into vulnerable people's homes in order to impart false teaching and false spirituality is not exclusive to Paul's day. I've seen it happen. In the heady days of the charismatic movement in the 1970s, I had an aunt who was a Christian, but not a particularly uh, well-taught Christian. And there were a pair of Christians who moved into Norwich, uh, husband and wife, who started knocking on doors, including knocking on the door of of my aunt. And they found their way into her home, read this book, Join this group. Join our little cult and this kind of thing. And it took my aunt's twin sister, my mother, better taught in the gospel to say, actually, there's some danger here. They're not out to help or support you. They're out to draw you over into their little group and then undermine your faith in Christ. So we're not talking about women in particular. We're talking about the vulnerable And we might ask ourselves, who really are the vulnerable today? Well, often, young people are vulnerable to false teaching, to the teaching of the cults, for example. Young people often who are at some point of crisis in their lives, there might be a broken romance, there might be a failure to get the job or the university place of their choice. They may feel lonely, disillusioned, and disempowered. And the cult or the false teaching seems to offer love, belonging, a clear set of rules, and something definite to believe in. But because the teaching is false, because it isn't gospel-focused, it doesn't liberate, it ensnares. But if some of the, the relationships described in this chapter are exploitative, others are nurturing There are, for example, those who taught Timothy the gospel from the time of his infancy, referred to in verse 15. And we know from chapter 1 and verse 5 who those were, his grandmother and his mother. 
Timothy had been brought up in a godly atmosphere and had been taught the scriptures. He, his was a home where faith in Christ was both caught and taught. If you are in any position as a parent, as a grandparent, as an honorary aunt or uncle or real aunt or un- uncle of a small child or indeed a teenager, value that opportunity to allow that child both to catch and to be taught the faith that you have yourself imbibed. So there's Timothy's mother and grandmother. And then if we're looking at healthy gospel relationships, there is Paul himself, who dares, in verse 10, to put himself up as an example of godly gospel ministry. You, however, he says to Timothy, know all about my teaching. He puts his teaching first. My way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, and so on. What cheek? Who who would dare? Would you dare (laughs) to put yourself up as an example? But he has such confidence in the work that God, by his grace, has done in his heart and soul. He can say, you know, you know that I've worked and ministered with integrity. Excuse me. Um, Just to tell a quick story that's told by a Christian teacher called Don Carson. Um, When Don Carson was very young, he um, helped with a little Bible study group for inquirers, those who are not yet... um, followers of of Jesus Christ and a friend of his helped to run this group and the friend was quite um, remarkable and quite outspoken I don't necessarily recommend this as a model for you and I it was remarkable what this friend did when uh, somebody attending the group said to Don Carson's friend you know I don't this Christianity stuff is is all very interesting but I can't see that actually makes any difference Carson's friend said If you want to know the difference being Christian makes, watch me. Come and live with me for six months and watch how I go about my daily life and then tell me if it makes any difference or not. Again, watch he. The the, the inquirer didn't go and live with the friend, but he certainly did watch that man go about his life as a Christian and did on the basis, certainly partly, of that observation, become a Christian himself. How many of us could say with honesty and integrity, watch me, and you'll find out something about the Christian faith and the Christian life. But you know, really, um, that's something we ought to be praying that we are able to do in all humility, to not only tell, but to show the gospel. Relationships, then, are they exploitative or are they nurturing? Thirdly, godliness. Is it the form or the power of godliness? What a striking phrase that is in verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And how striking, too, that it now becomes clear, in verse 5, that the greatest threat to the gospel comes not from without but from within. Not from 
persecution from outside, but from subversion within. And what a danger it is for any of us to have the lip of praise, but not the life. To be able to talk the talk, but not walk the walk. To be able to put our money in the plate, but not our lives on the line. To have all the appearance of a Christian, but no inward reality. To have faith, but not works. To have Christian beliefs, but no Christian behaviour. To be saints on Sunday in church, but sinners at home, or amongst our colleagues at work, or amongst one's friends. They will see through us, and they will know our hypocrisy. And that's what it means to have the form of godliness without its power. And what is the power of godliness? Well, amongst other things, it is really quite mundane. The power of godliness, amongst other things, is the power to keep on keeping on. Verse 14, as for you, continue in what you've been taught. It takes power, Holy Spirit power, supernatural power, to carry on, carry on, carrying on in the Christian life. It's the power to continue through terrible times. And it bears in mind, verse 12, that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let God's people have this kind of sincerity and integrity. And our power failures in the church will suddenly become drastically reduced. Love, ourselves or God. Relationships, exploiting or nurturing. Godliness, form or power. And finally, truth. Do we oppose it or uphold it? Truth. You can see truth being opposed in verse 8, just as Yanis and Yambres oppose Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Yanis and Yambres, uh, their names aren't mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, but they were magicians who could do great magic tricks, very impressive magic tricks, but they could not compete successfully with the power that God had given to Moses and Aaron. They were found out in the end. But let me move on from opposing the truth to upholding it. Verse 15 and following, with these famous verses where Paul says, Timothy, you know, you have known the Holy Scriptures from infancy, infancy, the Scriptures that make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says two things about scriptures, uh, Scripture. He talks about their authority and their usefulness. First of all, the authority of the sacred writings of the scripture. They are God-breathed. A number of other uh, translations of the Bible refer to them as inspired. But the NIV has chosen, I think very wisely, a very literal translation. Paul says the scriptures, the holy writings, are God-breathed. I think to understand what it means for the scripture to be God-breathed, there's a very close parallel that I think will help us to understand. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy when he says, we don't live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the scriptures, I believe, are God-breed in that sense. They, they, they proceed from the mouth of God. They are breathed out by God. They are God's word. What scripture says, God says. That's Paul mean. One of the striking things about this is, of course, that the, the New Testament hadn't yet been compiled. It's still in the process of being written. When Paul here refers to the sacred writings, the holy writings, the holy scriptures, he's thinking primarily, and first of all, of the Old Testament. And he says to Timothy, they, the Old Testament scriptures, can make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? But they can, and they do. And don't just take Paul's or my word for it. Listen to Jesus himself along the road to Emmaus when he draws alongside those two, uh, those two people trudging home after thinking that Jesus had died but didn't know about the resurrection. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Something like the authority of Scripture, now something like the usefulness of Scripture. Paul immediately goes on to say all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's one thing to believe that Scripture is authoritative, and another thing for it to do its work in our hearts and lives and in this church. The Scriptures have the power to save through faith in Christ Jesus and the power to equip the man of God. Now, the man of God is first and foremost Timothy, but by extension, to equip us all for our work of ministry, because each of us has such a work. Scripture is both authoritative and useful. Conclusion, then. What kind of church do we want to be? What kind of church do we want, do we want, to, be minister, do we want a minister to come along and rejoice in ministering among, the gospel among us? Surely, from this chapter, a church that continues in the gospel despite persecution without and despite efforts to dilute, distort, or deny the gospel from within. We want, don't we, to be people who are lovers of God rather than lovers of self. People whose relationships are nurturing rather than exploitative and whose godliness is in power and not in form only and who will uphold at all costs rather than oppose the truth of God. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we know how far short we as individuals and as a church how far short we fall of this high calling. But instruct us by your word and empower us by your spirit to become more and more the people you want us to be so that ministers among us, both current and future, will rejoice in working with us in the gospel ministry and in the gospel church. Amen.